This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. This is a very different kind of topic from the ones that preceded this, but um, I think that you'll find that it's more interesting than you probably thought when you got, uh, when you got here. So um, uh, the excitement is palpable um, all over the world these days uh, about generative AI. Um, and uh, so it's not just the people in the computing field who are excited about the incredible innovation that has been uh, happening, uh, but um, uh, uh, hundreds of millions of people out there are, are using chat GPT and other generative systems companies all over the all over the country are, are trying to sort of figure out what's our generative AI strategy here um, uh, and uh, uh, one of my colleagues uh, one of my former students who's a practicing lawyer downtown San Francisco says that uh, his practice right now is overwhelmingly advising companies about what to do about generative AI. So uh, it's really causing quite a stir. Uh, of course, there are uh, some suggestions that chat GPT or that GPT-4 exhibits sparks of uh, artificial general intelli intelligence. I think it's probably too early for that to be uh, really true, but um, I was talking to uh, Joey uh, Gonzalez recently about some of his students building uh, large language models too, so uh, it's really spread all over the, uh, all over the world. Now, one thing that will come as a surprise to, uh, to some of you who um, are kind of really excited about all of this is that not the rest of the world is so excited or positive about, uh, about generative AI. Um, there's one lawsuit against GitHub, Microsoft and OpenAI that's challenging uh, the legality of, uh, of Copilot, the software that suggests code in response to uh, programmer prompts. Uh, and Codex is also said to be uh, unlawful. It's the large language model uh, built on uh, millions of lines of open source code. There are two lawsuits in the United States against uh, Stability AI. Um, uh, for um, challenging the legality of, of stable diffusion. And um, in the Copilot case, they're ask, the plaintiff's asking for $9 billion, uh, which is a lot of money. Um, and uh, they're also asking for injunctions to shut these systems down. And the two principal claims uh, that are being made is that the process of ingesting um, uh, in copyright works uh, from the internet or elsewhere is an infringement of the copyright in the works. Uh, and also that the outputs, um, whether they are source code, text, images, or music, are infringing derivative works. Uh, the US Copyright Office is holding what they call listening uh, sessions about uh, what people think about this. And uh, some of the people are saying, oh, it's fair use and no problem. And others are saying, oh, massive piracy, and we've got to shut this stuff down. Uh, so it's important to sort of understand that this is actually super, com uh, super um, uh, controversial, uh, uh, at least in the legal community. Uh, and this, uh, this particular drawing will give you an idea about sort of the perspective of some of the people in the arts field, uh, because this is, the, this is the stolen art that goes into the, the large language model. And guess what comes out the other side? Um, so uh, this is an example of, uh, uh, of a, a reaction uh, to, um, uh, to generative AI that um, uh, I think is um, unfortunately 
uh, shared more than you might expect. So there's, how, there's a broader moral panic, of course, about AI, uh, the future of life open letter um, uh, that many of you have read. <coughs> Uh, calls for a six-month pause in AI development. It talks about how important the profound risks uh, uh, to society and humanity are um, and um, uh, really says we need to plan, we need to have some policies in place, uh, and right now we really don't. And so there's a kind of panic about it. Um, uh, there are the, This week, actually, there are meetings in, uh, in um, uh, Europe about... <coughs> about what to do uh, about generative AI uh, and about AI systems generally and what kind of regulation should we have and so forth. So there's really a lot of emphasis uh, on uh, law and policy in this uh, space. Um, and one of the comments that uh, has been made about generative AI uh, called it a, a Marxist nightmare uh, because millions of works, uh, millions of, of uh, works of millions of, of writers uh, are accruing to capitalist owners who pay nothing for all of that labor. So it's really, um, uh, really has got some people very upset. Uh, so nobody's going to the barricades yet, but um, uh, but this is actually uh, uh, an early uh, stage. Uh, so uh, I want to, uh, in the time that I have, address three principal questions. Uh, so the first is uh, whether making copies of uh, works as training data for generative AI systems infringe copyright. Uh, when are AI generated outputs uh, infringing derivative works? Uh, and then who owns copyright uh, in the outputs of computer programs that are copyright subject matter? Sort of who, if anybody, uh, owns that copyright? Now, uh, you may think that last question is really boring, but people have been arguing about that uh, since the mid-1960s, so um, it's actually the oldest of the problems that, uh, that AI uh, presents uh, in terms of copyright. So um, this is the outline for the rest of the talk. I have to give you at least a couple of minutes uh, about uh, copyright because um, uh, this is the shortest version I could think of. Uh, so important to sort of understand that copyright uh, law protects works of authorship from the moment they are first uh, fixed in a tangible medium, uh, and that protection uh, lasts for um, uh, the life of the author plus 70 uh, years, or uh, if it's corporate authored, uh, for 95 years from the first publication. Um, and uh, the rights vest in authors, what do they get? They get these rights, to exclusive rights, to control reproductions, distributions of copy, making of derivative works, and public performances uh, and display. Um, and that means that every photograph that you take with your phone, every email that you, uh, that you draft, everything that you create that is an original work of authorship, uh, copyright automatically attaches to it. So that even though there's lots and lots of stuff out there on the internet, you should not assume that it's not in copyright uh, unless it's, it's authored by the US government or um, uh, it's a CC0 uh, licensed um, uh, or was created before 1926. Uh, so uh, an important thing, though, here uh, is that copyright only protects the original expression uh, in works of authorship, not their ideas, facts, uh, or uh, methods. And copyright's exclusive rights 
uh, are limited by fair use and some other doctrines. And fair use is, re uh, is relevant to the ingestion issue. I'll give you uh, a quick rundown about that. So fair uses of copyrighted works in the US are not considered to be uh, infringements of copyright. Uh, it's a defense to uh, charges of infringement. And courts consider four factors when deciding if a use is fair, purpose and character of the challenged use, criticism, comment, news, uh, teaching, research, and scholarship are all kind of favored uses, uh, as are non-commercial as compared with com commercial. The nature of the copyrighted work, in general, artistic and fanciful works, get a broader scope of protection from copyright and a narrower scope of, uh, of fair use. Uh, factual and functional works uh, get um, broader fair use and narrower scope of protection. Uh, the amount and substantiality of the taking uh, and the effect of the challenge use on the market for or the value of the work. So the, the courts basically try to balance uh, those uh, factors together. So is ingesting uh, works as training data, fair use or infringement? Well, there are, are a couple of cases that suggest that actually it might be fair use. So uh, in a case uh, called Field versus Google, um, a court held that a search engine, uh, that is said Google is copying of internet content for the purpose of indexing the contents uh, was fair use and not infringement. Um, so it wasn't trying to exploit the works in ways that uh, copyright law is uh, concerned about. Uh, and uh, another case that's important and um, uh, more important actually because an appellate court decision, the Authors Guild v. Google decision uh, was one in which the, uh, the court held that Google's digitizing of millions of in-copyright books from research library collections for the purpose of indexing contents, serving up snippets in response to search queries, and doing other comp making other computational uses of the works was fair use. And again, it was because they weren't exploiting the expression uh, in the work. Um, they were just giving you a little bit um, from time to time. And mostly it was uh, 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 in response to queries about facts. Uh, and again, facts are not protected. So Stability AI uh, and um, uh, other defendants in these cases uh, uh, claim that these cases uh, uh, support the idea that web crawling um, uh, of the internet to um, uh, make copies of that for um, uh, for training purposes is actually uh, uh, a fair use and not an infringement. But um, uh, some of the people who object to uh, training data ingestion um, uh, distinguished uh, the Authors Guild the Google case uh, because in those cases, in the field and Authors Guild cases, um, Google was making it easier for people to find the copyright owner's works, uh, whereas what's happening uh, with Stability and others is they make new images that compete with the, uh, the images that, uh, that were um, copyrighted um, as uh, in the training data, uh, and copyright owners didn't consent to it, they can't easily opt out, uh, and they think that it's uh, only fair that they could, should get compensated uh, because uh, the value of the material that's being ingested uh, is what makes the generative AI turn out good stuff. 
Uh, and so the, the argument is uh, pretty strong for them. Otherwise, the generative AI systems would produce garbage, right? Garbage in, garbage out. Um, and so the carefully curated works uh, of authorship um, are things that somebody uh, sh uh, should get paid for according to this, uh, pers uh, this perspective. Uh, and the Authors Guild, which is one of the major um, authors uh, societies uh, did a survey and 90% of their authors think that AI um, uh, developers should pay uh, for ingesting uh, their works into the, uh, into the as training data for a large language model. And there are also some licensing markets that are emerging. Um, uh, and that is particularly important because the, uh, the fair use analysis considers is there harm to the market? And if there's a licensing market for the training data, um, then um, that's arguably a, a harm to, uh, to that particular uh, market. Um, uh, now, there are some countervailing considerations, so it's a little bit too early to say, oh, doom and gloom, uh, but um, uh, here are a couple of uh, ways of thinking about uh, that. Uh, so if copyright law only cares about protecting the original expression in a work, well, that should be a factor because the people who are ingesting uh, the, um, the training data, or the works as training data, uh, don't think about them in terms of their sort of expression. They think about them more in terms of they're a bag of words, and um, words by themselves are not protected, facts uh, by themselves are not protected, and so they're kind of raw material for computational uses, and text and data mining has been widely thought to be um, uh, fair use, and so um, this is kind of like the text and data mining uh, that um, has already been found uh, to be fair use. And the generative AI systems enable the creation of new works, um, and the constitutional purpose of copyright is about promoting the progress of science, by which the founders meant knowledge, uh, and useful arts. Um, <clears throat> and certainly, the generative AI systems can be said to advance that purpose. Uh, and fair use provides a little breathing room for um, uh, new creation. Uh, and so that may also uh, bear on whether the use whether the ingestion uh, is fair use or not. The issue about the derivative work right um, is uh, important here because a statute talks about what does it mean uh, to say that, some, that an author has an exclusive right to prepare derivative works. Well, derivative work is defined as a work based upon one or more pre-existing works. And then it gives a set of nine examples, translations, musical arrangements, motion picture version, and so forth, or any other form in which the work may be recast, transformed, or adapted. Uh, and some courts give a very broad interpretation to this last clause, and some, some courts give a very narrow interpretation. Uh, but courts have consistently, at least so far, uh, held that uh, for a second work to infringe a first work's derivative work right, the author must still have taken uh, a substantially similar amount of uh, original expression from the first work. Just being based on uh, the, the pre-existing work uh, is not enough. So for the most part, um, generative AI uh, uh, outputs, uh, text, images, uh, and the like, are not going to be substantially similar to the 
the, the data that was input um, ingested uh, from uh, during the training data series. Uh, and if that's true, or insofar as that's true, outputs are unlikely to infringe that right. Uh, the complaint in the GitHub case reports that one study showed that Copilot uh, yielded up uh, as output um, um, some code matching training data in about 1% of the outputs. And um, I don't think that that necessarily is going to be um, uh, meaning that Copilot infringes. Uh, but one, one of the problems is that when many ingested works depict the same image, such as Mickey Mouse, uh, the large language model may memorize that. And then the output, you ask for an output of Mickey Mouse, and it may look just like Mickey Mouse, uh, in which case Disney might have a claim uh, of infringement. Uh, so uh, one of the things that people who are trying to avoid infringement are thinking about is ways to remove duplicates from the training data so that's less likely, right? The more duplicates there are, uh, the more likely memorization is to happen. And then others are looking to put, to use uh, output filters to prevent uh, infringing derivatives from being uh, produced. Of the two cases in the US uh, um, against uh, stability AI, um, uh, Getty uh, is, the, uh, is the strongest one. It's, uh, Getty claims that stability ingested 12 million photographs from uh, Getty images. Uh, and not only that, but the captions, right? One of the things that's very valuable about the, uh, about the Getty um, photographs is they all come with captions that basically describe what the content of the, of the thing is. Uh, and so they're arguing that, um, uh, that that's a copyright infringement. Uh, uh, and uh, there's another um, uh, law that protects uh, copyright management information, uh, like Getty logos. Getty is also claiming a trademark infringement claim. Um, and um, it its complaint shows some stable diffusion outputs that, uh, that Getty claims are infringing derivatives. Um, and importantly, Getty is willing to license uh, uses of uh, images uh, in its database as training data, but ob uh, objects to stability's massive infringement. So this is an example of an original Getty photo uh, and then a, a stable diffusion output. Um, notice this. Right. This is a kind of a, um, shall I say, um, uh, a mangling of the Getty logo, um, and so that's actually something that uh, doesn't uh, doesn't bode well for um, uh, for this particular uh, case. But again, these cases are in very early stages, uh, and um, it's hard to know how long it's going to take uh, to uh, uh, address all the issues. Um, as I said before, the Copyright lawyers have been debating uh, who owns copyright, if anybody, in the outputs of uh, computer-generated uh, software. Um, and um, there were actually a lot of things written in the 1980s, uh, including something I wrote. Um, uh, and so I, I went back and read it again um, recently. And it was actually pretty good. So um, <laughs> uh, it was like, phew. Um, uh, anyway, so that's the that's the uh, that's the thing. It's available on the internet, of course. Um, uh, so um, if you're interested, so this is a this is an image generated by a guy named Stephen Thaler. Um, Stephen Thaler um, owns a computer, develops some software that is generative uh, AI. 
Uh, this is one of the images that his generative AI system uh, produced. And um, he took this to the copyright office and said, please issue us um, a, a registration certificate. Now, for the most part, people don't go to, co to the copyright office to get a registration certificate unless they want to sue somebody for copyright infringement. But Stephen Thaler went to make a point, uh, which is he thinks that he should be entitled to uh, copyright. Uh, and what he says is that the creativity machine, that's the name of his software, um, is the author of it, but he's the owner of the copyright in the image because um, uh, the software was like an employee of his, so he calls it a work for hire. Um, and so, the, um, generally speaking, the work, the, the original works that are created by employees um, in the scope of their employment is owned by the uh, by the uh, by the employer. And so, he tried to get a copyright for that, uh, and the copyright office said no. Um, and he asked for reconsideration. They said no. Lacks human authorship. Uh, and so that's actually, um, uh, he wasn't satisfied with that, so he took them, uh, the, the Register of Copyrights, sued her, uh, asked her, asked the court for a, a declaration that in fact the register has to, uh, has to grant him this registration certificate, um, and that's pending in uh, federal court in DC. I don't think he's gonna win. This is, uh, this is Zarya of the Dawn, uh, so Chris, uh, Castanova uh, is um, uh, somebody who uses Midjourney to uh, create um, images, and um, this is uh, part of a, a little book that he, of, um, uh, of images and text that uh, uh, Castanova uh, created, took it to the Copyright Office. Uh, the Copyright Office issued a registration certificate, and then on social media, somebody from the Copyright Office found out that she said, oh, I got copyright uh, in my, uh, in my um, uh, AI-generated images, and the Copyright Office said, hey, wait a minute, uh, and cancel that registration, uh, and uh, instead said that, that, that she could get uh, copyright in the text uh, and the selection and arrangement of the of the images, but all of the images were not protectable uh, by uh, by U.S. copyright law, and so she got a um, a, a, a changed registration. Um, uh, this led the copyright office to actually. Uh, issue a policy statement about AI-generated uh, works. Uh, they lack human authorship, um, and that, I think, means that the works are in the public domain and available for free copying, so you can't stop anybody else from using it um, if it's out there uh, in the public. Um, uh, and the uh, Copyright Office also says that if you apply to register copyright in works that incorporate AI-generated text, images, or other content, you have to identify what parts are AI generated, and you have to disclaim authorship uh, of those uh, of those parts. Um, uh, I add here, it's a, maybe a little bit of good news for stability because the office isn't denying registration to AI generated works because the outputs are infringing derivatives, uh, but just that they lack human authorship. Okay, that's what that's where the things are going. What about? large language models themselves and training data. Well, the software that embodies the large language models um, are almost certainly eligible for copyright protection, 
But it's a really interesting question for people like me, anyway, uh, whether the large language model itself uh, is uh, within the scope of protection that copyright law uh, applies to, um, or uh, that copyright provides to um, the software. So in general, mathematical representations, statistical creations are not eligible for copyright protection. They're excluded from the scope. Um, but the same problem may happen as to uh, the large language models as the outputs, which is they're the product of automated processes, not of sort of the kind of intellectual creation that copyright law was kind of thinking that that's what, it, what, we're, what we're about. Um, so what about training data? Um, well, uh, insofar as there's kind of curation uh, and some selection and arrangement of, uh, of material for the training data, that's possible that there could be some claim of copyright. But just cleaning up the data is probably not enough. Um, uh, but one of the things that I've been hearing from people who are working in this particular space is that a lot of people are just slapping uh, licenses on uh, collections of data um, whether they're copyrightable or not, um, data as such is not within the scope of protection that copyright law uh, provides to works. Um, so these are some of the other un unanswered uh, questions uh, that are out there in terms of generative AI. Uh, so in conclusion, um, it's going to be years uh, before uh, courts are able to find a uh, definitive answer to questions that I'm addressing here. Um, global conversations about uh, AI governance are going on uh, uh, in uh, capitals around the world. Um, uh, a lot of the questions have to do with uh, is special legislation uh, specific to AI uh, need to be adopted? The uh, European Union uh, is planning to um, uh, finalize what they call their AI Act, um, which will impose heavy responsibilities on AI developers uh, and uh, on companies that deploy uh, those uh, AI systems based on levels of risk uh, posed by the deployment. Um, the AI Act was actually developed uh, with kind of specific types of AI systems in mind, right? So an AI system that might be used in the healthcare system, um, an AI that would be used uh, to kind of um, help with uh, managing um, important infrastructure, right? So um, electricity uh, and uh, the like. Um, and then along comes general purpose AI, and they don't know what to do with it. Um, uh, so that's a kind of unanswered question right now. And generative AI is kind of throwing another wrench uh, in the mill. Uh, the, so the U.S. doesn't really have much in the way of uh, special uh, regulations now. Um, there's a framework for risk management of AI systems uh, that uh, NIST has published, uh, and um, there is also an AI Bill of Rights, but that's actually just a set of principles operating at a really high level of generality um, and not anything even close to being uh, a regulation. So the odd thing is that copyright law is the only law that's already in existence that could bring generative AI systems to their knees. Okay? Court says ingesting infringement, the whole thing basically can be destroyed. Right? So the copyright law could, uh, it's an existential threat uh, to progress in this particular field. Now, I don't think it's going to happen necessarily, but I just wanted you to know that um, 
this is out there on the horizon, uh, and it's worth being attentive to it and trying to build arguments, if you think that, they, that it should continue to thrive, um, help to build arguments that it will, um, uh, it will actually advance uh, the purposes of copyright rather than uh, destroy it. But I can tell you that um, there are a lot of mad people out there right now in the copyright land about uh, generative AI. So that's it. Okay? Thank you. Wow. Okay. So you said so. I was shocked to learn what you said that 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 about the copyright office not covering anything that's generated with AI. Because now I'm thinking about you know any film that's made with 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 computer graphics is they use a lot of tools and some of those are on the fine line between what's AI, but. How does that how does that work? Because if they're partly and even these generative, are they're they're steered to a large degree by selection, at least by the human um, owner. So how have they addressed those kind of nuances? Well, this is an issue that the office is going to have to visit and revisit and revisit. Right? It's done. Uh, they published one policy statement about it. They haven't been thinking about uh, the implications for Disney, for example. Um, and Disney is going to kind of keep a low profile on this one because uh, uh, they don't want uh, uh, to say, "Oh, well, you could, you know, this was computer generated, therefore it's not protectable within the movie, so anybody can take it and uh, and and uh, you know use it someplace else." Uh, so that's actually a, a a serious thing that they have not thought about. Um, uh, but um, I know the people in the office who are working on it, they're trying to do their best, but um, it's one of those areas where they don't have inside technologists. Um, I've been arguing for years that the, um, the Copyright Office ought to have not only um, a chief technology officer and a little office of those people, but also uh, a chief economist um, who could basically do some um, essentially economic analysis because uh, the copyright office right now, right, it started at copyright law used to be this like little thing over here that hardly anybody paid attention to. And then software came along and they decided to use copyright for software. And ever since then, it's just been one scramble after another. Um, and the office is more or less setting industrial policy from the United States through some of their decisions. And they don't have any expertise on this at all. It's really scary. Wow. OK, so I should open it up for other questions. And I'm sure we have a lot. We, well, thank you for ending early, because we have a good amount of time for extra questions. Bob, I'll give it to you. As you said, you have to somehow connect uh, the expression in a derivative work, in a, in a generated work, with the inputs to show where it was taken. But if I say, please make me a, a picture of the Mona Lisa playing basketball in the style of Pixar, I mean, there's both a textual input and a graphical input to that. So how do I dis disentangle the, the impact of the text prompt from the data prompt caused by the scanned pictures? Those are very different kinds of expressions that they're being. Yeah, I mean, one thing actually is that until really the last uh, year or so, um, this kind of copyright and AI generated stuff was just a toy problem, right? Lots of people have been thinking about it because it's kind of interesting, um, at least if you're people like me. Um, 
but it wasn't real, as in it didn't really have much in the, in the, in the uh, consequences in the real world. So I think one of the things that Kashanova is trying to do is to say, I didn't just punch a button and have this thing show up. I went through a series of prompts, and so I was actually feeding the large language model, the chat GPT, with uh, so many ideas about what I wanted uh, the thing to create that I, in fact, have some authorship uh, to it. And the office said no. Uh, now, again, Kashanova will keep trying, um, uh, but um, uh, this may end up in the courts uh, too, uh, because uh, to the extent, um, I mean, the metaphor that Microsoft uh, and GitHub have for um, Copilot is actually a really good metaphor, I think, generally, which is if you think about the AI systems and what gets generated as a kind of collaboration where the AI is your co-pilot in the creation process, um, it seems to me that uh, that might be something that uh, would support uh, copyright um, in these things. And I think that's the direction that Europe is going to. Hi, um, this is like somewhat tangential, but um, the web crawling uh, case made me think about this. You mentioned how a recent case talked about how web crawling um, could be allowed under copyright, but I think that's if we assume that it's public data that's being indexed. Could the argument be made that some of these images for the Stability AI case is actually private? And if so, then could we, that follows a whole new set of rules. Well, one thing that would happen, right, if somebody uh, essentially busted into um, uh, a, a database of, let's say, uh, valuable images, and I kind of broke through the paywall, um, that would be a factor that would cut against fair use. So, um, uh, but uh, let me just remind you that the, um, that the, um, uh, the author skill, the uh, Google case, involved copying from uh, millions of books in research library collections. And you know that was a private collection, um, but um, Google just scanned uh, the millions of books uh, to make the Google Books corpus, uh, and that's one of the reasons that they uh, that they um, the search engine is so good um, is because it's got a lot of data to uh, uh, to work on, uh, and a lot of the research library books have a lot of knowledge that people might actually want to ask questions. Uh, through a search engine, and so um, uh, that's one of the reasons why it's been better than Bing, is it has more data. Um, is the um, human generation standard that the courts are using now something that is codified at the law level. I mean, it, it sort of makes sense because that's historically, it was always the human generation center because we didn't have anything else. Um, but is, or is it just being used as a cop-out because when it's not human, then it can be done at scale and all of a sudden, then the copyright office can't handle, you know, 100x more requests? Well, the copyright statute itself um, is more than 300 pages long. Um, uh, so it's a really thick thing, uh, but uh, it doesn't have, for the kinds of things that you'd actually want to know the answer to, 
um, it has very bare bones rules. So uh, that, um, uh, that the, the part that, that sets forth the exclusive rights is probably about 25 words long. It's really short. Um, so it's, you know, the, you know, how far does the derivative work right extend? What exactly is a reproduction um, that uh, counts uh, as infringement? Those are all left to the courts. Well, um, you know, one of the things that lawyers do is kind of build upon um, existing precedent. Uh, so we always start, right? And the part of the problem is, of course, is that, um, you know, what's happened in the past isn't always a reliable guide to what's going to happen in the future. Okay, um, you're next. Put your hand up if you have a question. I see a lot of questions here. So we're going to try to move quickly through as many as we can. But you're out next. Okay. Okay, I'll just say it. Um, so is this my question is simple to the co-pilot question. A lot of people I know are using these tools with work. So maybe they do internal work, there's not a copyright issue. What if they did something they write copy for an an ad or something like that? It's fair to say they're at risk because there hasn't been uh, a decision as to whether they legally own the content. That's kind of yeah. a question statement. One of the things actually to realize is that copyright is a strict liability regime. You don't have to intend, you don't have to know that something's uh, copyrightable. So if the outputs are, in, uh, are infringing derivative works um, and you were the person who uh, generated that, you are as liable for copyright infringement as the person who developed the software that generated it. Okay, so um, uh, and that doesn't matter whether it's uh, you're just using it, you know, as little art in your basement, or whether you're using it as an ad. I mean, if you use it as ad, um, that might mean that there's uh, damages that can be paid for, or the damages that can be awarded. Uh, but um, uh, but again. It's really important to understand that the, uh, the copyright really uh, extends to, right, if I create with something with this tool and that tool, um, or that, that output is infringing, that means I'm an infringer, not just uh, open AI. Yeah, thank you. Great discussion. Uh, first of all, I don't know why the Copyright Office doesn't ask AI what it thinks and how it should the copyright apply to it. Uh, secondly, uh, the, there is an issue here, like in case of uh, AI utilizing open source community of developers to generate code, which means that they now generating income, the company, aka Microsoft, is generating income from an AI trained on my code, yes. which means that I no longer can get the job and generate income. So what is the solution there? I mean, there's one thing to create knowledge for general public, so when I ask question, I get the response. In the case of uh, copying all the books and putting it in the search engine, but there is another element that the company, Google, and now in AI world, Microsoft, in, is generating income, and I'm left out. So what is the solution here in terms of... Well, so 
Uh, it's I, thank you for asking that question. Um, the, the GitHub case about Copilot um, is a class action lawsuit uh, brought by four programmers who as yet are unnamed. They're Doe 1, 2, 3, and 4, um, and they object uh, to the use of the open source code in the GitHub repository uh, as um, uh, essentially training data for Codex, the, uh, the large language model that then Copilot um, is a, an application for. Um, and they basically say, you know, I put this up uh, under this license, and the license actually requires some attribution, um, and now you're making money off this, and that isn't fair. Um, and again, there's a claim in the case. I, I just talked about copyright because even copyright's like uh, really hard. Um, uh, but one of the things that's going to be uh, I think a, a question in that in that case is that Copilot doesn't write whole programs, as I understand it. It, it suggests code, um, and so it could be like snippets in the uh, in the Google Books uh, case that I talked about before. I mean, that's at least possible. Yes, I mean. That's why there's a lawsuit, is that there are people like you um, who think that this isn't fair. So uh, with tags, you can basically say, please don't index me or things like that. So that's kind of an excuse, they, kind of a safety mechanism, right? Uh, and then the other thing is, like for instance, if you type in linear fractals, I'm number one, they quote me, and they have all this stuff, and I think it's really great. So can I give authorization to Google to say, uh, um, Please spider me more often, or something. I mean, so I don't think so. I mean, that's what should be put in the, the the structure of things because I think that would optimize what goes on in in being able to index information. Okay. I'm, Oh, okay. So I'm I'm wondering what your understanding of how lawmakers today understand these issues. Do you think they're going to? I'm make... sorry. Could... Oh, um, I was wondering what your understanding of how lawmakers today understand these issues. Yeah. If you think they understand it well, and if you think they're going to make like decisions that are consistent with what you feel. Well, again, just on the copyright issues, I think it's a pretty good fair use case for ingesting data that's on the, on the open internet. I think that's probably okay. Um, and to the extent that there's outputs that, don't, that are not substantially similar, um, I think that that's, that's likely. And the, the, one of the complaints, the stability, um, uh, the Anderson versus stability case basically says uh, that the outputs are unlikely to be substantially similar. It's like, um, from the standpoint of the stability lawyers, it's basically, you're admitting that they're not infringing derivatives. Now, the, um, one of the things that's going to happen is that there's going to be an effort to kind of stretch that concept of, of derivative work. If you remember that last phrase, or any other form in which the work is recast, transformed, or adapted, you can imagine a court giving a broad interpretation to that, even though most of the cases give it a pretty narrow interpretation. So, um, uh, but, uh, you know, it's a non-trivial argument. Thank you. Um, thanks, thanks for your talk. Um, so I just want to build off on the question on, on like licenses, right? So I was wondering if your training data all have different licenses, uh, and now potentially you know, those licenses may conflict with each other or they may have issues with each other. So how does that kind of affect the AI model at the end? And uh, yeah. Yeah, there are license claims in the, 
In the Getty Images case, um, uh, they're saying uh, that that it was a breach of uh, the license that um, uh, that Getty Images has for um, access to the images in their uh, on their site, um, and so that will definitely get litigated. Um, uh, and uh, as I was just saying, with uh, with respect to Copilot, there are kind of license breach issues uh, in that case, uh, also. Um, uh, but you know exactly what licenses do and how much they're enforceable um, is a question that people can debate about. Um, and I've been talking to people who are saying, hey, I have this one uh, pot of data over here, and I got it under this license, and I got another pot of data over there under a different license, and the licenses aren't the same. Uh, can I combine the data? And what people are having to do is just decide uh, how much risk to manage. Um, uh, uh, but for example, if you're just, you know, if you just have a compilation of data and there's no creativity in the selection and arrangement of it, then it's not copyrightable at all. And what's, what, what Creative Commons does is it basically says, hey, I created this work of authorship and I could get thick copyright on it, but I'm going to put it under a Creative Commons license instead. But the license sticks to the work because it's a license to use the copyright. And so if there's no copyright in the data collection, there's arguably no basis for imposing a license. Okay, we have one time for one last question. And I know many of you have questions. So <clears throat> also good fortune that, that Professor Samuelson is here on campus. She'll probably stick around for a little bit to take some questions. But she's also on campus, so you can find her or take her classes. Question? Go ahead. So I had a question that I've been thinking about for like about a year now since Dali came out is there's a ton of legal questions that are still open about these generative AI models. But what about the ethicality of it? Like every time I use ChatGPT or Perplexity or Midjourney or whatever, is it inherently unethical because of the way data is ingested? Is that something I just like should wait on? Yeah, again, whose ethics are we talking about, right? There isn't like a general consensus about this, but some of the people who object to the ingestion basically say it's just unethical. Um, so, um, so people, you know, who can, who are sympathetic to the idea that the ingestion of, you know, billions of things um, is um, uh, just unethical uh, because you didn't ask permission, then don't use it. Um, but um, uh, I would say that, you know, most of the people who are using it uh, are not thinking about the ethics issues at all. Um, and um, uh, at this point. There's no law to enforce a particular ethical norm on this thing unless there's copyright infringement. So what, I really appreciate that last question because it really hints at the, the broader scope. I mean, what you've, what you've told us today is really interesting and alarming. Actually, things that, I, that really surprised me and to some degree how much the whole AI industry is at risk for if this goes the other way and in, in, these, in these cases. I think there's also a big question about, um, we, you didn't touch on um, uh, pa patent rights, which is another whole issue about who owns the patents that are being used and the underlying technologies for these things, which is another whole lecture, I think. Um, but I want to say it's so, so wonderful to know that we have really, this is such an important question, and it really is at the heart of what Berkeley does. 
And in, in thinking about the public interest and about, about open source, that's so much in, in part of our, 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 our primary values. And we have someone who is really carrying the flag on this issue. She's done it since she, be, she began with, a, I think, you know, it's one of those things where she started with a hunch. It was a little tiny corner of the field. It's now grown to become so central. And so you're hearing from the world authority on this matter today. And I am, I am so appreciative. Now, before we give her a big round of applause, I want to say that that last question sort of brings to mind that we have many other lectures to, to, co to go on this topic. We need to hear from philosophy. We need to hear from history. We need to hear from literature. We need to hear from art. So many different subfields. So there's a lot more to go uh, to come. I want to thank the Citrus organization, all, all the key people there, Costas, Camille, Lori, Cheryl, Daisy, Andre, who's behind the scenes making sure all the AV goes well all these, all these years, all these weeks. And Angie Abiketola, who's right here, who's been the, uh, the partner from the Bear um, Research Lab. So thank you for all of you, that, all the organization you've done. And a huge thanks to you for all the work you continue to do. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.